For August 17th, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 633. No one's going to understand what this crab is saying. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. Our voices joined in glorious harmony uh, in song. I am Matt Rather. I am here with my uh, my the, the rest of this barbershop quartet that we have. Uh, Matthew Belinke, hello. Hello, <laughs> Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and Mr. Jordan Stokes. Hello. <laughs> I get the seventh, I guess. Hey, how's it going, everyone? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, flat nine, sharp 11. Um, the, uh, hey, so, uh, speaking of all this, speaking of all this music, this, uh, barbershop quartet is, uh, assembled because through, uh, various means, I think, uh, uh, Mark Lee, who is on a uh, who is on a journey into the the world of the humans, up where they walk, up where they run, up where they uh, stay all day in the sun. He is, uh, you know, he has been transformed briefly, and will be back with us soon. But he is um, he brought to our attention, I think, uh, the Howard documentary on Disney Plus, which is uh, about an hour and a half long, sort of Ken Burns style sort of interviews and photographs, um, story of the life and career of Howard Ashman, the lyricist of, among uh, other things, uh, The Little Mermaid, uh, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, or maybe some of Aladdin, um, who uh, very sadly died young of AIDS. And so he had this sort of incredible shooting star like career um that was so bright and so short and uh you know we sort of commend the documentary uh to you if you want this sort of biographical material but we immediately sort of dived in um together on you know in our uh sort of friendly chat and started talking about these musicals which you know are wonderful and we love and we decided hey why not do an episode uh make an episode about this so if you want to sort of uh back in the old days of theory for turntables we used to say you have the opportunity now to pause the podcast and go listen to the source material and so i would can i would consider the source material for this uh the little shop of horrors either the off-broadway cast recording or the film version with rick moranis um the little mermaid uh Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, and uh, that is the that is the assigned reading for this. There are some supplemental readings which we may uh, we may refer to or not, but the uh, the assigned listening is available in the Student Resource Center, uh, also known as Spotify. So um, let's let's just dive in and start start talking about these these musicals. Unless anyone feels like there's more uh, prolegomenon necessary to this, but I um, I listened to them as I cleaned uh, as I cleaned my house today. I listened to all of these things on uh, kind of a big Spotify playlist, and I was struck by something that I had never been been struck by before, and that is the kind of the in both the um, there's like a uh there's like a 
this is the world song that is part of Disney. Um, that is the part of the kind of the form of a Disney musical, uh, where it's the bonjour, bonjour song or called Belle in Beauty and the Beast. Um, it's maybe under the sea in, in Little Mermaid. It's, you know, Circle of Life in The Lion King. It's, there's a lot of, uh, the, uh, it's, um, another opening, another show in Kiss Me Kate. It's uh, all of these, you know, things where you just kind of get acclimated to the to the world of the musical. And in a lot of these, there are kind of Greek choruses. It's the the people who the townsfolk who are commenting on Belle and isn't she peculiar? It's the in um, uh, the Aladdin song. Uh, I forget what it's called. One jump ahead or something like that. Um, there's a chorus of like uh, of Orientalist harem women who. <laughs> Like say uh, that Aladdin is uh, is a lost cause, but he's cute, um, and it struck me. Bill, I think he's rather tasty. <laughs> That's, uh, it's and the the growl is just on rather tasty. So, so I I noticed it today. Still, I think he's rather tasty. Um, almost as though two people were two people were singing the uh, the lyric, but I. It struck me. Which to close read it, by the way, means tasty in the manner of rather. Right? <laughs> wow, that's a real uh, that's a real fishy reading uh, in the sense of Stanley Fish. Uh, it's a reader response uh, criticism. So the the it struck me that a les lot of poissons, these les poissons. <laughs> it's a lot of these have <laughs> their root. Do you guys know that uh, that the the French chef who sings Le Poisson is uh, Odo from Deep Space Nine? Uh, René Aubergenois, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I just I, that that blew my mind when I found that out. Also, Lumiere is Jerry Orbach. There is there is some great the, the, the grizzled detective from Law and Order. For those of you who don't know Jerry Orbach, um, yeah, or the uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you you look you can look at it that way, or you can look at it as this like this you know storied musical theater performer finally had the chance to make a buck doing some television that ran forever in syndication. He was, he was the original El Gallo in the Fantastics, right? And good. Good, good for him. I mean, you know, try to remember a time in September before Law and Order was, you know, streaming twenty four hours a day. Um, I was trying to make a point, which is that this kind of Greek chorus type of writing um, seems to have its roots in Little Shop, where the story is told with um, the story is told with kind of a girl group, a Ronettes style girl group of three uh, singers who provide kind of commentary, who provide vocal support, and who do some kind of moving of the narrative along from from one place to another. I remember in another context seeing an interview with Frank Oz, who directed the film adaptation of Little Shop, and talking about how the girl group lets you kind of inject style, lets you inject a kind of a, a non realistic um, kind of aesthetic layer uh, with the outfits and with the choreography, you know, and the kind of the tropes of that, like, brill building girl group type of music that they sing um, into the, you know, into the story. And the other thing that they do is, like, narratively, they give you a chance to kind of 
almost like go to 3D. Um, if you think of like a kind of a character's perspective or two characters' perspective as being kind of flat, you can get, you can kind of triangulate with the, the girl group and not just because there are three of them, but the, the, um, you know, the perspective like can shift, uh, with irony. Um, like there's a song called, uh, the meek shall inherit, um, in, I forget whether it's just in the film or whether it was in the off Broadway, the, uh, stage show as well. Um, but where it's, you know, the, the, um, they say the meek shall inherit, uh, you know, the book doesn't lie. It's not a question of merit. It's not demand and supply. They say the meek shall inherit and you're a meek little guy. You know, the meek are going to get what's coming to them by and by sort of, I, you know, ironizing the, the kind of the upside and the downside of, you know, what Seymour is going through with a, you know, as he becomes famous and yet has to keep killing people for the plant. Oh, it's about a killer plant from, from outer space. Um, I don't know. I, maybe there are a bunch of counterexamples, but I couldn't think of another Greek chorus like that. Of earlier ones, you mean? Well, no, I mean, the, I guess I can think of Greek choruses from Greek plays, but like uh, uh, where it's kind of as pronounced a feature as I happened to notice as I was, you know, listening well, like to it today. Like a fourth wall-breaking Greek chorus, right? Where they just sort of like sing right to the audience. Sure. Like they, they, know they're in a, they know they're in a show. So, so one, one, one example that I think calls, because we're talking about Howard Ashman and his kind of personal style as it becomes sort of man in the effort to kind of keep the gravy train going after his death at Disney, that becomes a kind of Disney style, which might really be his style, right? Um, so you're looking to peep for, for shows that, that precede Little Shop of Horrors that have a similar conceit. I might point to Pippin in 1972, which has a different execution of the conceit, right, where it's a carnival show that's being put on by carnival players, kind of like a morality play, and they come and they sing to the audience and they're saying, we're going to put on this play for you. Right. Uh, and, and it's going to have all the things that you want to see in a drama. It's going to have backstabbing and, and all this other stuff. Um, the thing that feels distinct from that, that it, with an Ashman style or Disney style chorus, like you see, I think, Jordan, you had pointed out Hercules when we were talking about this as a really solid example of this kind of thing, which seems to come from Little Shop. So it's like Ashman starts with his own show, right? And well, and then he uh, he kind of uh, joins Disney, and then he makes bank with Disney, and he dies in the middle of a Disney movie production. He's replaced by Tim Rice, and then Disney kind of carry, carries forward his work and reproduces it in future musicals. Um, but yeah, like you're familiar with Pippin, right, Matt, and how that all works. Um, and how they don't, they which like, Matt, both, whole, both Matt's are familiar with yeah, Pippin. Yeah. No, I'm gonna be, I played in the pit orchestra. For, that's where I met that trombone player. P remember? Yeah, I remember. I remember. I, the pit NYU orchestra, NYU, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you know what? The, the other one I was going to mention along those lines is a funny thing happened on the way to the forum where the main character just smashes the fourth wall all the time and, and saves himself from a certain death by calling for intermission. Um, but I think that the difference between like Pippin and funny thing and what uh, the other Matt is talking about is that um, in, in Pippin and a funny thing, it's the main character that has the ability to directly address the audience. And it almost seems almost like Bugs Bunny that like he has a knowledge that like this is all fictional that the other characters don't. Whereas that it's almost flicked in Little Shop and some of these other things where it's these sort of nameless uh, sort of secondary characters that can call out the theatricality, but like the protagonist never does. The protagonist plays it straight. 
Yeah, you can think of earlier uh, examples that like come close to it also. Uh, so there's the, the barbershop quartet in The Music Man, right, which is sort of function like the girl group in that it's a distinct musical style and they pop in every now and then, but they don't address the plot very much. They just, they sing Lida Rose over and over again, mostly. Uh, so like they're doing everything. Uh, if you couldn't speak English, you'd think it was very similar, but it turns out to be quite different. Um, and then you can also find examples like in, uh, in Camelot, there's that one song Guinevere where they're faced with the embarrassment of having to do a big, like epic medieval battle on a Broadway stage. And then rather than try to do it, they just have the core narrate it. Uh, but that's just one song. It's not a recurring thing that comes back over and over again, uh, sort of giving you this particular aesthetic flavor uh, as a bumper periodically throughout the show, which does really, I mean, I can't think of another example. It's hard, uh, you know, it's really tempting to kind of like to allegorize all of this th- through the life of the man, especially when when we watched this sort of documentary about the the events of his life. But one of the things that it that it does is it kind of gives an it kind of maintains an outsider perspective. It maintains kind of a double lens perspective throughout the whole thing, where you have the main story going along as though on one timeline, and then you have you know uh, kind of running alongside it, maybe intersecting at points, but maybe just kind of like a projection from it. This other other uh this other point of view which could be you know um which could be kind of metaphorically a whole uh, you know any number of a of a host of alternative points of view uh based on the fact that that um you know based on the fact that he was gay and making this like extraordinarily commercial mainstream american uh entertainment or you know a number of other readings that you could put onto it question about Little Shop that I'm wondering if, if Rather can can help me with. The interesting thing about it is it's based on a, a pre-existing movie that's not a comedy that is a low-budget horror movie, was a Roger Corman horror movie, starring like a very young Jack Nicholson, and it's supposed it is it's supposed to be an actual sort of scary sort of a deal with the devil horror movie about a, a talkie plant that uh, eats people. And I assume that the original idea was to sort of like take this movie that was like sort of so bad that it's good and to sort of like lean into the silliness and make it a dark comedy. But at least to me, it's like, I find little shop to be legitimately like affecting, you know, like I tear up when I see that. And it almost like, I almost wonder if they, they set out to make it like a farce and almost like despite themselves, they, they actually made it something real well, I, I'm not sure that those things are opposed, like a, a farce or something that that comments and something that can be, um, you know, something that can be sort of affecting, you know, beyond something that can be sort of legitimately affecting. I, I think the original Roger Corman one was also, the, though not a, a comedy per se, in the sense that like Airplane is a comedy. Uh, I think it is very... Um, I think it is very campy, right? And is a kind of kind of parody. It has Jack Nicholson in it, but um the uh Jack Nicholson plays the the dental patient, the kind of the role played by Bill Murray in the Frank Oz directed adaptation of the musical. Oh, I just assumed that he was Seymour, but so he he wasn't even the star of the movie, although that's all anyone remembers about the original, which is like, oh, there's a young Jack Nicholson in it. Yeah, but he's the he's the guy getting uh yeah, who um yes, I think he's the the 
masochistic dental uh, dental patient, if if memory serves. But I think that I mean, and he talks about it in the documentary. I mean, I think that that there there is some like campy DNA in the um, there is some campy DNA in the. Uh, uh, the original and the source material, which was like, and this is information that comes from the documentary, which was like produced on a dare in two days on the set of another movie, um, but has this, you know, kind of glee, this sort of joy about it that makes it, you know, that makes it kind of fun, fun and irresistible. But like he talks a lot about, you know, Ashman talks a lot about what what he was trying to do, um, you know, in terms of like do a very by the numbers. American musical, uh, kind of, you know, in, in the form, you know, the, the, uh, the kind of the love story and stuff. And like, I think that like one of the reasons it's affecting is that that formula works, you know, like you can sort of do a burlesque of the formula, but in terms of when you do a burlesque of the formula, you, um, you end up doing the formula, uh, like the, the, uh, it's, you know, I, I'll Pete, can I steal your thunder here about the, uh, about the ironic, yeah, the ironic and unironic side, the, the favorite onion, Pete's favorite onion headline which is that ironic uh ironic porn purchase leads to unironic orgasm right that, that's that... not my favorite my favorite onion headline is clearly the one about 100 percent of americans having secret lives or the one where dolphins get opposable thumbs that's also <laughs> <a good> <laughs> <laughs> um, point, point counterpoint between the yogurt billboard and the person who hates consumerism that's a great one i like that one a my, lot. my my favorite uh, is i just want to tell yeah my favorite was uh, i just my... want to tell nice people about the yogurt i think is what they <laughs> my, my favorite is uh, the sports franchise from my area will defeat the sports franchise from your area. <laughs> my favorite onion headline ever. Um, Matt, but uh, Matt, before you go too far, I just wanted to, to sort of interject that that you mentioned that Little Shop has heavy elements of camp, and you know although camp has gone mainstream and like you know has been you know, it's, it's sort of like just part of the, the, the water in which we all strength, uh, swim. Originally, it was like very much like like a gay thing, right? Like the, the idea of camp came out of this. I mean, I'm, and I'm, I'm basically paraphrasing from a Wikipedia page that I'm looking at now. Uh, and it said the attitude was originally a distinctive factor in pre-Stonewall gay, gay male communities where it was the dominant cultural pattern. So I do. it is interesting to think about, and especially interesting to think about how much sort of gay sensibility creeps into those early Disney films that we think of as like the most G rated, you know, middle American entertainment, but do have some sort of like subversive, you know, interesting, you know, like photocopy of a photocopy elements taken directly from gay culture at the time. Well, so the, the, like what, what on earth in the little mermaid is even remotely campy, Mapalinky? <laughs> oh, I admit that in the I can't do it. I can't do the uh, the, the Ursula. Um, but even like the way that she enters the movie, right? The first thing you see is like well, like a close up of her lips as she applies this lipstick. You know, it's such a. You know, and, and I mean, like the Disney animators have been upfront about the fact that they use like a divine, the sort of the, the noted cross dresser of the, the John Waters film. As like a inspiration of her sort of like you know look and, and mannerisms, but uh, and it I mean it just so happens that that she is in fact voiced by a woman. But we were talking before the podcast about how they they seriously considered uh, having her thinking of Masca and Harvey Firestein 
as doing her voice, you know, and it, indeed it was, it was what, like 10 or 15 years later that, that he would do, uh, and to turn black, uh, in hairspray, which was like a sort of a similar kind of, a, uh, uh, tour de force. Little, little mermaid. So, Matt, well, and also <laughs> divine, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. He, well, he plays the, 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 the original Edna Turnblad. Yeah, was divine. Yeah, w- played yeah, Ricky Lake's played Ricky Lake's mother in the non-musical uh, John Waters film uh, Hairspray, on which the the Mark Shaman musical is is based. Um, I I was Pete, but I forget what I forget where on earth I was going with it. You were going to talk about the kind of ironic versus unironic. Uh, appreciation for the musical as a form. It's something that Ashman says when he's talking in the, in the, in the documentary, some of his doc- documentary footage of him, when he talks about animation, right, is he talks about how you can't really do... He doesn't like movie musicals, like West Side Story or other sort of played straight movie musicals, because he doesn't think that the public is willing to accept... Uh, in the expected reality of a film that two people can break out in song with each other and not say break the fourth wall. Right. He thinks that that there there needs to one of the reasons that Little Shop of Horrors was so successful was that it it admitted to the audience that it was absurd or, or silly or fun or different or weird that everybody in this thing was singing and that this is something that it's hard for people to get over and get past. And so. Uh, and that, and then also that it used po- popular genres of music rather than the kind of operetta that had become very uh, comfortable in um, in uh, musicals at the time and and straight through till now. And it, it's interesting to hear him talk about you know oh the big departure from the conventional notion of what a musical is into a more modern genre of popular music that really speaks to the people and to what they want. Uh, is the is little shop of horrors, right? Because I think a lot of people uh, might claim that that's something that happened much more recently, right? Uh, uh, with something like Hamilton or or other sorts of or even Rent, right? Or newer sorts of musicals that kind of branched out um, from what a musical it was supposed to be back in the day, and also because we live in a post Glee world where the notion that kind of show choir, Broadway belts. You know, singing, you know, the dream of being the singer under the spotlight, which, of course, is is something that was uh, really refined by by um, uh, the guy who was the guy who co-wrote Sing with Howard Ashman, who's also featured in this documentary. The guy who wrote a chorus line really drilled into the culture. Right. Um, But, yeah, but just this notion of kind of I guess what the proposition is, is that Howard Ashman in writing Little Shop of Horrors claims that you need to have a an alienation effect. And he cites the Three Penny Opera as an example of the kind of off Broadway theater that he is seeking to make in his theater company prior to joining Disney. Um, And because this is sort of a Brechtian thing, too. Right. You need to kind of tip your hat to the audience and let them know that, yes, it is silly that everybody is going to be singing. It's not meant to be played as the straight reality. And also we're going to play music that you're going to like. And that animation is one of the few places where the audience is already willing enough to suspend their disbelief of what's what's going on in a movie that everybody singing isn't going to bother them. And that's why he's excited to work in animation, because he loves Broadway style musicals. 
but there's just not an opportunity to make a movie about them in the way that he would want. Uh, I guess was that what you were trying to try to touch on? Yeah, and um, and I mean, I mean, I guess I was going to going to say that, like, even you know, the the uh, you know, with respect to the ironic porn purchase, right? If you do a you know a kind of a burlesque of the you know classic musical formula, y- you are doing the classic musical formula, right? And it's not, uh, it, you know, it shouldn't surprise you if some of its magic starts to work on you, right? Like if if unbidden, some of the the spells start to sort of take take shape you know and the yeah the the i don't know the ghost of cole porter is summoned from the uh is summoned from the great beyond i don't know this metaphor got away from me pete yeah. no it's it's really interesting is to say another way to think of it is to say that if you want to do a classic broadway musical and you're worried that uh that people are going to think that it's lame or something it's fine to do a pastiche of it because you'll get to do the classic broadway musical anyway right like no, no one is going to stop you you'll get past their guard just fine yeah and it's not disrespectful to the form or anything because it will still work exactly why i want it to yeah, yeah. So sort of to give a very specific example of how this worked, um, you know, we think of Ashman as primarily a lyricist, but in fact, like he had some credits as a screenwriter. And in fact, he was the one who uh, back in 1988 pitched the idea of an animated Aladdin and got started. And it was his original treatment that had. So um, once again, I'm reading from Wikipedia and said remaining faithful to the plot and the characters of the original story, but envisioned as a campy 1930 style musical with the Cab Calloway Fats Waller like G. So that innovation that the genie was really going to be the one who completely like broke the fourth wall and like, you know, made modern sort of references and like stuck out like a sore thumb while everyone else sort of played it straight. That came from him. Now, obviously, Robin Williams made it his own. But that sort of concept that that really kind of like makes the movie what it is uh, comes from him. And once again, there's that word on Wikipedia camp. Huh. Um, Aladdin was my Disney musical as a, as a kid. Like it was the one I was probably just a hair too young for little mermaid. And by the time Lion King came around, I was probably a hair too old and Aladdin just hit at, just hit at exactly the right time for me. And I loved the kind of the improvisational anarchy of it. I love the kind you know, the Robin Williams, um, style of it and then just the kind of the clever um the cleverness like he he was it's funny a lot of i was listening to suddenly seymour from little shop and like i was so i was so touched by it like like listening to it and how kind of simple it is and how just what a clear vision you know and like not trying to not trying to kind of um I, uh, you know, do it up too much, right? Like not, not, not trying to like put a hat on a hat with it and just doing kind of the simple, uh, the simple love song between, between the characters, but like, um, you know, uh, bell, um, the uh the uh under the sea um be our guest uh the ali ababwa song prince ali from aladdin right like this man who could jam some words into a line who could like pack a lyric density um 
like uh uh one 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 person i heard um derive d- uh, describe stephen sondheim a little sneeringly as uh, he packs his lyrics till they're so damn dense you could put them in your yard and you could use them for a fence uh and kind of illustrating the problem that he was uh, uh criticizing and that like man this is a guy who could write some patter right for the for the the characters i don't know with that like that sort of full on the, the maybe not the kind of the the manic energy of a Robin Williams, but definitely with the kind of the maximalist aesthetic, you know, that that uh, Robin Williams kind of embodied and sort of brought to life. I mean, one thing that really strikes me about these. Then movies, he also knows. Yeah, go ahead, Jordan. You first. No, no, please, please, Matt, go. I, I was going to say that. I think there's an idea, which is perfectly logical, you can understand where he came from, that if you're writing a song for a children's piece of entertainment, the lyrics should be understandable by a child. And uh, he does not seem to believe that, uh, that there are lots of lyrics in these songs that I'm, I'm staring specifically at, under the sea, under the sea, when the sardine begin to begin, it's music to me. Um, and there are a lot like that. There, are, like if you look at like Prince. What, what does that mean? Explain that to people who don't know what that means. Matt. <laughs> there, there's a uh, famous Cole Porter song, "Begin the Bikini," and so it's it's a it's both a, and, and the Bikini is a is a dance, is it not? Cole Porter days, and so it's sort of a dual reference to like you know I, I suppose the, the, the sardine playing the kind of music to which you dance and begin, but it's also the the uh, a reference to like the sardine playing Cole Porter-esque music because there's a song begin to begin. Um, but I mean, it's, it's one of these things like it goes, well, there, there's no kid in America that had a hope of understanding this lyric. And it's actually kind of crazy, not just that he wrote it, but that nobody at the studio was just sort of like, you have to change this lyric because nobody knows what it means. Nobody's going to understand what this crab is saying. Um, <laughs> they just let him go with it. Um, and there's lots of lyrics like that, that like when you read the lyrics, you're like, Oh wow. That's what they're, that's what they're saying. Um, and there, you know, there seems to be, you know, not, not that um, the songs, a kid is not going to understand what's being said. And that like a lot of the language is sort of, uh, is so powerful in the, you know, especially like, you know, we were talking about um, part of your world and just like the the sort of repetition and the the uh, I don't know if, if if you want to get into a master class, Jordan, but like you know some of these lyrics are just um, you know slipped in there as almost Easter eggs for I don't know maybe other lyricists. I mean, you get them. Other big musical theater fans. Yeah. Right. Exact. Exactly. That. Like. I mean. You know. And, and of course, like you know, we think of Aladdin as like the prototypical um animated movie that had these adult references right that like kids do not know what groucho Marx is when he when, when uh, robin williams comes through it does like uh, you bet your life um but adults do or at least adults at that time did now adults don't and nobody nobody knows what's going on <laughs> no no we um, are adults and we know what's going on there like the, uh, eh, i feel like barely. no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it, it is. It is interesting the idea that like he is writing. He's both writing lyrics for children, but he's also writing lyrics for his peers and himself. Um, and that there, there are these. You know, it, it rewards um, actually going through. You know, not just not just sort of letting it pour over you during these musical numbers, but like reading what he wrote. 
uh, and it's it's um, there's a real poetry to it. It does. I mean, it does both because as the kids say, "Under the sea," like that song slaps, right? But uh, the is that what the kids say? I don't know. But um, you know, but also it stands up to to scrutiny. So it works on a, a number of of fractal levels. Hey, Jordan, you were about to to jump into something, and uh, before we push on, I want to make sure you have an opportunity to cash it out. Oh, no, I was just going to say that, uh, that yes, he actually, <laughs> I'll get back to that. What I want to say now is that, do you feel like it's really only with that run, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, uh, Aladdin, that the Disney musicals start to feel like Broadway? Because like, I'm thinking back, definitely the old ones are musicals, but like, it's almost a different thing, right? Uh I wonder if, like, because there's not Cole Porter references or anything like that in in Cinderella or in Sleeping Beauty, to my knowledge. So is this like, was there a sort of merging of streams there, do you feel like? Well, because they say they don't even have a familiarity with Broadway. In the one of the surprising things in the documentary is the animators and directors of The Little Mermaid confessing that they didn't know even the most basic ideas about the ways that Broadway musicals are structured and and how and the sort of classic tropes of the kinds of songs that exist in Broadway musicals, uh, of course, are by and large much more well known now by lay people than they were at the time also. But uh but I thought that was really interesting, right? Yeah, because looking back on it, yeah, that was fascinating. It was like yeah. an episode of Yu-Gi-Oh, right? That like <laughs> the uh, the animator was like, he had this this secret that he laid on us that we the character has to come out and sing something called an "I Want" song, <laughs> which like th- that's that's not a secret. That's like th- the most basic formalist principle that you would learn in like a music appreciation class, where they are going to tell you one thing about Broadway. They're like, oh, you have all these songs at the beginning that are called "I Want" songs, right? Uh, and you can sort of imagine Ashman telling them that, and them being like, "What?" And him being like, "What?" <laughs> right? Joey, if you put your uh, black eyes red dragon in attack mode, you can attack his life points directly. Yeah, you. That's what I'll do. Mean, <laughs> Never thought what of that. It says written on the surface of the card exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I you activated my trap card what does it say I can't read but, but, I mean it's interesting that if, so if you look at the Disney musical right before this it's Oliver and Company which I, I think there's there's one song in it that, that was a, a Howard Ashman Alan Menken song or at least an Alan Menken song and that's how they got their foot in the door but the rest of that was like the whole the whole sort of hook of the, the musical is that they cast Billy Joel as the sort of cool cat dog, as the Alfred Dodger dog, and they they gave him a, a couple Billy Joel songs, and then they have uh, 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 Huey Lewis does a song as sort of like the 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 uh, unseen narrator, and so it's a sort of like you know eighties contemporary sort of pop rock uh, feel to it. And if you go back further, like and you think about the the Disney Robin Hood, the the whole that is a truly insane movie because it's literally like what if the Robin Hood was an episode of the Dukes of Hazard. With literally that style of sort of like country music, that's that's I'm not even joking. Like that's got to be the pitch, right? Is that like, oh, this is basically the Dukes of Hazard in the Middle Ages? That's uh, that's um, where the hamster dance comes from, even, by the way. You don't even need to repaint the the back of the car, right? It still reads as a Union Jack. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's where the hamster dance comes from. But it's it's you can see. So I mean, there's a musical template that Robert comes from. It's all these sort of like sort of like laid back country sort of like ditties. It's not Broadway. It's something real different. 
Well, I mean, I, for for what it's worth, they're they're like we're talking about one strain of Broadway. Like there was also the like. You know the uh, Godspell, the like the Stephen Schwartz kind of rock musical, or some of the Andrew Lloyd Webber ones that had that had happened um, that had happened at this time. So, like the idea of like what is Broadway has never, well, at least in in the second half of the twentieth century, was never quite as mono vocal. You know, there were the there were the like the serious art music people like Sondheim or like Leonard Bernstein in in um, uh, West Side Story. You know, there were the uh, the like I guess I would describe a lot of Godspell as like country rock. Um, so so that you know that that all existed, right? It wasn't yeah. all and the people doing a lot of cocaine and roller skating. Right. Which is like, <laughs> there was also part yeah. of all Disney films, you know, like the, I'll never I'll never forget uh, going to see Starlight Express. Uh, you know what I learned? Freight is great. Freight <laughs> is great. And that's about eight minutes of the lyrics of that that song while they roller skate around the state. Freight <laughs> is great. <laughs> Is there, is there a plot? Uh, I'm giving you one sentence to tell me the story of Starlight Express. What's yes. it about? Give me uh, a later pick. There's a the trains. It's it's kind of like um, Thomas. <laughs> like trains have a trains have a race. Is what the plot of of uh... trains have a race. <laughs> wait, the, wait, wait. Okay, what? Matt. Uh, can I can I blow your mind? I need to tell you something. Yeah. What? Starlight Express was intended to be. A Thomas the Tank Engine musical, but they couldn't get the rights. Oh, you're kidding. Are you serious? That's true. (laughs) That is a true fact about Andrew Lloyd Webber. (laughs) Andrew Lloyd Webber wanted to do a Thomas the Tank Engine musical, and they they would let him. It's like, okay, fine. Which of these three... Which of these three asked the most mind blowing, right? Andrew Lloyd Webber comes up, like fresh on his, like he's got his big pile of cats money, I think it is, and he's like, "I want to do a musical about Thomas the Tank Engine." That's crazy fact number one. Crazy fact number two. They said no, and then crazy fact number three. He's like, "I'm doing it anyway." <laughs> Look, we already bought all these roller skates. <laughs> Um, wow. <laughs> so like so yeah so they t- you know gosh darn it you won't let me do thomas the tank engine okay i'm gonna come back with a biographical musical about a little known figure from uh argentine politics the first lady of argentina eva perón um let's uh we haven't really talked about beauty and the beast uh that much anything uh anyone want to throw anything well, on did, the? did you want to talk we never got into part of your world we were so fascinated by it before we did the podcast when we were on the back channel and i know jordan had a lot of thoughts about it did we want to touch on that little mermaid close yeah. read a little bit before moving on sure yeah, yeah yeah let me uh let me do my ted talk here about why part of your world is is high art um i i, I had a I, I almost had like a good uh suave lead into it when we were talking about how he can pack in so many lines do such good patter songs but like another thing that ashman knows how to do is to to slow the heck down when he wants to 
I would point to uh, to the Beauty and the Beast song is another example of this, where uh, simplicity and repetition are sort of the name of the game, and they tend to be these big emotional moments. So the thing that I noticed about uh, Part of Your World as I was listening to it, uh, this thing I've been thinking about actually for like years, actually. <laughs> I can't remember when I, when I noticed it the first time, and I keep coming back and thinking about it more, uh, is that... There's this through line in the lyrics uh, that you get to the part where uh, she sings, uh, I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing, walking around on those, what do you call them? Oh, feet, right? Uh, so that that breaking into out of song and into speech in order to fish for the human word, right? Uh, and then that gets repeated immediately after that. Uh, uh, legs are required for jumping, dancing, strolling along down a... What's that word again? Street, right? So again, she runs out of the English, and she starts speaking, and then they're just like, one word is sung. And then that comes back a third time. So I think that often when we think about lyrics, we're thinking about like couplets. You think about how mm. this, this one particular rhyme is really, really clever or something like that. But the thing that like that blows my mind here is that after the bridge of the song, uh, you get finally um, ready to know what the people know. Ask them my questions and get some answers. What's a fire and why does it? What's word burn and there she doesn't start talking and i think the thing that's that i think is so amazing is like okay so feet burn these words are not the same right like feet is one of the most trivial and kind of silly sounding words in the english language whereas burn is about as emotionally loaded a word as you could possibly come up with which it doesn't mean that like every time that someone says the word burn they're going to be feeling emotional but if you wanted to pick one word for jody benson to sing and fully emote on the word burn itself carries all of this juice that you couldn't do if feet was in that position and and what I think is going on here is that, like, actually, burn hits harder because you remember feet when you're getting there, right? Like, when she fishes for words, she's supposed to stop singing. She's supposed to say something silly, but instead it's burn. And that right there is, like, is already kind of exciting. But what then makes it more exciting is that, like, well, first of all, there's the vocal performance of it, right? That uh, you have to actually clothe those bones with flesh. You have to actually say, what's it again? Oh, feet, right? In that particular way. And then burn. And then uh, Mencken gets in there, too, because um, there's, there's a musical through line as well that sort of starts in a different place but ends in the same place. Um, you get just a little bit before this at the end of the bridge, um, uh, bright, bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand and ready to know what the people know. So what's going on there in the background is, uh, this is the tonic of the, of the mode that you're in, right? So when you get women sick of swimming ready to stand that's scale degree two and it needs to fall down to one and there's a really strong tendency for it to want to fall down to one so ready to stand and ready to know uh there's a little escape tone stand and red but you go down to one really solidly and that's just like a normal cadence when that melodic figure comes back though uh in the in the final uh the final verse right What's a fire and why does it, what's the word burn? 
it should go, when's it my turn? And a lesser composer might have done that, but he doesn't. It's, what's the word burn? When's it my turn? Wouldn't I love? So uh, you're going from scale degree two, rather than two, one, you go two, three, wouldn't I love? Love to explore that shore up above. And you've actually gone up to four, right? Dum, bum, here comes the bride, dum, out of the sea, wish I could be. And that four actually never walks back down. Four, three, two, one, part of that world would be like the most conventional way to do it. But instead, uh, out of the sea, wish I could be, it's just sort of left hanging, part of that world, and you just jump down to the tonic. And it's really like a different contrapuntal strand that finally resolves it. The scale degree four is just left there floating. You remember how that scene is drawn. Uh, actually, she's like, she's in her hidden treasure grotto, right? She reaches out with her hand through the ceiling and then leaves her hand up there and just sort of sinks down as gravity carries her back down to the ocean floor. So, like, the animation and the music and this sort of elaborate through line in the lyrics are all conspiring to give you this sense of that gesture kind of like hitting so hard and reaching up so high. Um, anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's really, really remarkable. Uh, the, the, like the level of, of art that goes into that. And I don't mean to say that you need to appreciate these complexities to really have gotten the little mermaid rather trying to get at is when you hear her sing when's it my turn something inside your heart kind of clenches right and i think that all of this this armature of stuff is what goes into having that moment like hit you so hard it's having it hit you so hard that was when you when you got it right Anyway, that's, in, in uh, a, and thank you for coming to my TED talk. It is Remember not to like no. and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> mash that, mash that heart, fam, or ding that bell, fam, or else you won't know uh, when we have updates. Um, yeah, and it's it's as you point out, it is not unrelated to the thematic material of wanting to kind of strive to to reach higher and to kind of like break a barrier between the water and the land, right? I mean, that sounds so iconic. It's. I was gonna say it's only ten years later that South Park, bigger, longer, uncut, basically did a, a a almost like a line for line parody of that song, including there's like a shot where where Satan is singing up there and does the sort of like reach upwards towards the camera shot. Um, and it's I man, it's funny. It's like it it's. It, it was only 10 years, really. I mean, a little more than that between The Little Mermaid and, and South Park. But, like, it was enough time for, like, that to already become deeply iconic, right? That, like, it, it passed quickly from, like, that was the summer's big movie to, like, that that is, like, a part of the Disney canon that will live forever. Yeah, it's it's funny. In the and docu- even kind of a part of the musical canon, right? Right, like, exactly. I was going right? to say that... The South Park musical is like making fun of not Disney movies, but musical tropes. And they're like, oh, well, a song like Part of Your World would be a thing that a musical would have. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess like, well, a song like Part of Your World in what in what sense, right? Like uh, uh, with a character kind of being desiring to go to another place. Like, is, is that it? Or what? what was the... 
I mean, even more specifically, just like, oh, so uh, if this song is kind of like, um, kind of like, do you hear the people sing, right? This song is going to be kind of like part of your world, because those are both iconic moments in the in the great canon of musicals. Sure. Yeah, it beca- I, it sh- I got you. It becomes a reference point or a kind of a shortcut to, to a, a f- uh, you know, shorthand for talking about a... Um, for talking about a style. I, yeah, I really love that song. It's, um, I, I think you're totally, you're totally right on. And I think if, if we had another hour, uh, I would ask for the harmonic analysis and how it, how it supports it. Um, you know, because like ready to stand with the flat seven chord and the, the stuff, you know, the, some of the secondary dominant stuff, like, and how it, I don't know how it sort of floats together um, or snaps together or uh, seaweeds together is, um, you know, I, I don't know. I just I think it's it's super good. So come back for part two of Jordan's TED Talk, uh, you know, in, in a future episode of, of the Overthinking It podcast. Um, you know, so he, he talks a little bit in the documentary about how the Broadway musical... Well, he... Yeah, you got to wonder, maybe some of this was kind of sour grapes, right? Because he, he was not really ever commercially successful on Broadway, but he he was very successful off-Broadway. You know, Little Shop was a, a legitimate hit, um, you know, but never played in, according to Hoyle, uh, uh, according to Hoyle, like Broadway in the box, um, there's like a box of four streets that defines the Broadway district and, and it never, you know, it was always sort of downtown. And, the um, but he talks about how the kind of the Broadway musical does not translate to other media and how people, people won't accept it. And, you know, Pete, you started to get into your thoughts about that, but I know, I know you had some more thoughts about like what, what that means today when, you know, suddenly like Broadway is cool and relevant again, um, for a variety of reasons and anything worth going into, uh, at this juncture. Oh man. Well, I'm also just very uh, thrilled at Jordan's exegesis there. And I'm curious what he thinks about the Gaston song. Cause I've known that song's great too. And I just can't quite crack the genius of, uh, him using antlers on all of his decorating, but it's there. I know someday. Um, but yeah, so, so the idea, so I, okay. So Broadway, I'm curious, one thing I'm curious about that I'd love to learn more about with regards to Broadway is how and when the Broadway audience really shifted. I would love, love to know, and do you guys know what the Broadway audience looked like in say like 1962 in terms of how much was a ticket, who got to go, were people traveling there from other places, Right. Was what was going on that people were going to Broadway shows at the time, because it's become or had become certainly prior to Hamilton, I would assume is 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 still as such just because I have no better ideas, uh, much more of a of an entertainment for kind of upwardly mobile daughters and mothers. They's very being very female focused in terms of the audience like Wicked, of course, was the huge show for a long time. Um, And I just I don't know where or how that changed. Um, I'm wondering, but as I'm sort of thinking about this and going through it is, is, is I'm wondering if, if we, if we want to frame, cause they, everybody in this documentary seems to want to frame Howard Ashman's work 
in accordance with a social narrative that they feel strongly about. And and I'm thinking, well, why don't we do that, too, uh, even though it's sort of arbitrary? And his sister says, well, he wasn't political. Right. He, he just you know, he wanted to he was empathetic and he would put himself in the shoes of other people. And that's how he was able to write musicals and, and know the mob and Beauty and the Beast isn't the same as the as the people who are, you know, um, oppressing and and. Uh, and, and persecuting gay people for having AIDS, for daring to get an illness, right, um, that infects humans. Um, that's not a metaphor. It's, it's just him sort of identifying with the situation. But what it, what it makes me think of is, okay, so this, this guy comes out of, well, the Midwest, first of all, right? I mean, where, where did he grow up again? Baltimore. He, he, he grew up in Baltimore. Good morning, Baltimore. Then he goes. He he does gets his art degree in Indiana. Yep. Right. And he, and then he so he he complains and talks about how he's not really connected to the other, you know, Broadway elites at the time that he and the Broadway up and comers who all went to Yale, of course, the best school. Uh, as 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 the high, the headlines constantly remind us through its flawless execution and, and uh, of all things, <laughs> um, uh, Cole but, Porter, man, <laughs> Cole Porter. You know, you hate, sometimes you ever think sometimes you got to stop living up here and start living down here. <laughs> See, uh, that's Yale since Cole Porter. Sometimes I think no, no, no. It was, we were the high point. We were the greatest. Um, but no, 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 no. Um, what I'm trying to say is, I'm wondering what the role of Howard Ashman's work is in the revival of Broadway as an entertainment for mothers and daughters, uh, which I think kind of kept it alive for a while <laughs> when it when Cause I mean, when I was working in nonprofit and uh, theater research, the theatrical audience was, you know, the research on the audience was showing that it was overwhelmingly female, um, w- which of course is not reflected in the people who are necessarily writing the shows all the time, uh, which is an issue. Wait, the audience, but, uh, the audience for nonprofit theater was overwhelmingly, the- or the audience for commercial no, the broader, theater, the broader theatrical, the broader theatrical audience and particularly Broadway. Uh-huh. Um, and it. so it's like, well, if you're trying to put on a show, you know, what kind of audience are you trying to target and why? Um, and I want to look at the demographics. Sure. A the, bit, I yeah. mean, Pete, like the, the, Speaking of the eighties in particular, right? Like when when Howard Ashman was having his career, the the kind of British invasion happened, right? And like Cameron Mackintosh and the really useful group um producing all those Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals was um you know the big kind of the big hotness, at least uh, that's the kind of the headline story, the kind of like main historical thrust, you know, in the like history written by the victors sense. Um that I'm aware of. And so like, I think Phantom of the Opera was, um, 1986, uh, or thereabouts and one, one, all the Tonys, um, Evita, which is, you know, smaller and more experimental had, had come before like cats had come before, you know, like, so that, that, that is what was, what I recall going on, you know, at the, uh, at the time, at least in in my understanding, of the history. Right. So I found I found a research report here, which looks like it's pretty recent uh, from the Broadway League that that said that I don't know whether this is 2019 or 2018, but it or maybe it's an earlier year that said that there were 66 uh, percent of the audience is female on Broadway, um, which, again, it's like that's a lot. You know, um, especially when it, it's a, an area that's also very often uh, credited as being an enthusiastic uh, kind of cultural rallying point for gay men. Right. In particular, uh, like Howard Ashman. 
Um, it, it you know, sixty six percent of the audience is female, and so there's an extent to which musical theater kind of lives in a post Little Mermaid world. Uh, is 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 the sort of conjecture that I'm putting out there right now that uh, that that uh, we saw this kind of cross pollination from off Broadway theater trying to kind of change Broadway into Disney, which then kind of mutated into this broader crossover cultural phenomenon, which then goes back to and then manages to cross pollinate Broadway. And now you can see, you know, I mean, think about how many shows, how many of Howard Masterman shows have played on Broadway in recent years, like a bunch. I mean, Little Shop of Horror sure has. Right. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, the final the final vindication. But I mean, I don't know. I when you're asking I mean, about all, yeah. all three of those yeah. uh, Howard Ashford, uh, Alan Menken musicals became actual Broadway shows. Yeah. Uh, in recent years, even though it's funny, it's like they're, they're so filmic, right? The way they're written. If you think about the beginning of The Little Mermaid, it's like starts on a boat and then it, it has this epic sort of montage as this fish sort of swims through the water and then a dramatic underwater castle. And, you know, you would have thought at the time it's like, well, this is is fundamentally like you can't do this on the stage is it's something that had to be written for the screen but they they did it you know everyone's on roller skates yeah. <laughs> yeah. wait is that really what they did <laughs> yeah in the, in the little mermaid a lot of the the way they, they do the swimming things is like a lot of the uh the actors are gliding across the stage on roller yeah. skates and they're dressed like trains it gets very <laughs> they're dressed like trains yeah. they had already <laughs> they're just like percy <laughs> and uh thomas and <laughs> edward and Sir Topham bought all that cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean, I don't know what to say about it. I Just that, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> uh, I was going to say I can speak a little bit to the um, like the femaleness of the Broadway audience. I, I, I heard a um, I'm probably mangling the point that she was making, but I, I heard a interview with a scholar named Stacy Wolf who has written about kind of the the broader spread of Broadway musicals through America. And apparently, there's like this vector of summer camps for girls, often summer camps explicitly for Jewish girls, where like. Uh, Everyone would be sent to these things, and they would put on these musicals, uh, and you would kind of get indoctrinated into Broadway musicals at camp for, like, your formative years. And then when you go to visit New York, you're like, finally, I see Broadway, and you bring the whole family kicking and screaming with you, um, or maybe just your daughter who has gone to, like, the same camp as you. So there's this interesting way in which, like, uh, and, and like a cert, to a certain degree, less gendered, but uh, but not entirely ungendered, high school theater departments do the same kind of thing, where like you all across America get kind of seated with the idea of Broadway. And then when you're in New York, you go. And because theater departments in general are like, if they're not exactly uh female spaces there're certainly spaces where like certain kinds of masculinity that are rife in high schools are typically not encountered right so if you wanted to get a lot of for instance women and gay men excited about an art form like putting it into high school theater departments would be a great way to to make that happen and this seems to have sort of been what happened but that that trend goes way back into like the 19 teens if i'm remembering oh wow remembering okay. the interview Interesting, interesting. Yeah, because I'm thinking, like, I know people who are men who went to Jewish summer camp and did Broadway musicals. <laughs> Matt. <laughs> right? Like, or Schechner did Guys yeah. and Dolls, I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so, some on this very podcast. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, no, there will not be pictures posted. Huh? <laughs> this all—it's funny because it it connects back. It 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 connects back then, kind of to the pre-airline days, right? And the the notion of where could you travel to when you couldn't fly, and the kind of uh, camp and resort culture, and this is like the sort of dirty dancing over too, right? Or paradigm, which is like you're you're not you're going out you're going somewhere, but you're not going too far away. You're still within striking distance of New York. Um, and, and the center of all that stuff. That's just, it's so interesting. Um, I guess, I guess. Yeah. Like it, pretty much exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess what, it, what this raises to me is sort of like sort of what remains, right? Because one thing that the, the documentary doesn't go into is, is really the, what happens to this Disney animation renaissance after Howard Ashman passes away, which is the Lion King is the big answer, right? The other answer is they get Tim Rice to come in and finish his work on Aladdin and probably change it in ways he never would have liked, uh, which is why I kind of hesitated to do any Aladdin-related close readings. I don't know which of the lyrics are Tim Rice lyrics versus Howard Ashman lyrics. Um, but but uh, but then they do The Lion King, which feels so different. And it was really enlightening because I never even knew that this guy existed. I, I didn't really know who this person was prior to watching this documentary. Elton and, and John? Yeah, Elton John. I, I watched this documentary called Rocket Man, which was about Elton John and how he wrote The Lion King. Uh, it's, it's a main it's a main focus of the movie. Um, but no, you know what I mean? How uh, I didn't I didn't know that, you know, between the Aristocats and, you know, the Emperor's New Groove, there was a sort of burning shooting star of a sort of impassioned and perfectionistic artist who died of AIDS, right? Who like whilst dying of AIDS, uh, you know, spent his like remaining stamina uh, enchanted by Angela Lansbury uh, telling the director of beauty and the beast, how teapots work, (laughs) right? Like it's, it's uh, I didn't know that this sort of confluence of human drama uh, and, and commoditized entertainment production was all happening at the same time. I didn't know this was the story. All I knew was that, when you watch this sort of Disney sing-along ones, there's the ones that are kind of the ones you recognize that are really good and the ones that are kind of not so good, right? You know, everybody wants to be a cat and all that stuff. It's like, ah, we are Siamese. Like, eh. <laughs> there's, there's oh, we are Siamese is problematic. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing is problematic, but it's especially problematic. But then we then there's, oh, these are the ones that are good. Not that the other ones are all bad, but as a kid, it's like, okay, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin – uh, you know, I, is it just the fact that these were the ones that were coming out when I was the right age to come across them and watch them? Um, and, and and the ones before that, you know, were just were just uh, they were also good in their own way. And, and I just wasn't they weren't mine. They weren't of my generation. Um, what What is it that caused them to stop? Why did this all happen? I mean, how many conversations have we had on this very podcast about this very topic where Howard Ashman hasn't even come up, let alone the fact that he died of AIDS? Right. It's like it's it's kind of fascinating. Here's the other thing is like this. This this was probably the moment in the documentary Just step away from talking about the Lion King. This was the moment about the documentary me the hardest other than the crying at the end. And that I felt really was pertinent to the modern situation, which was that the production of Beauty and the Beast at one point, um, you know, the Howard Ashman tells Jeffrey. Was it was it Katzenberg uh, yep. or. um yeah, yeah who was running who was running Disney Animation at the time. Yeah, tells Jeffrey Katzenberg that he's got this fatal illness, this fatal incurable illness, and that his health is going to be declining while he continues to work on this project. And Katzenberg is like, you know, we're going to give you whatever you need, but I can't 
tell anybody why, right? I can't tell people that you have HIV, uh, you know, and that's not him making that up. I think that was also probably how Howard Ashman felt about the situation as well, right? Like, like this is a private thing. Don't tell everybody. So Katzenberg just orders everybody to pack up and move to upstate New York to be closer to Ashman and, and is like, I'm going to have to tell them that we're doing this because you're a diva. Right. Which was just such a wonderful little moment. It's like, I'm going to tell you, look, you know, he's he's just he's got that Oscar. Right. He's got the Oscar. He's got all the clout and everybody is really frustrated. And the people at the time didn't know why they were moving to upstate New York. Well, they did know they they knew, of course, they knew for sure why they were moving. They were moving because Howard Ashman had an Oscar and he got to work from home and they all have to go move into the country. And this is really annoying. Right. And and just the I the sort of gulf of understanding of the situation was 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 just felt so, uh, you know, it's felt so bitter, right? Like it felt like such a bitter truth about the situation and also so uh, of the moment. There are so many situations where people think they know what's going on with somebody else, with another person. And and there are so many situations where you think you know what's going on with, with a piece of art and where you think you can extrapolate from looking at the piece of art what was happening with the artist who made it. Right. And like, well, OK, I can I've read this book and in this book, there's all these symbols. And then I can extrapolate from reading that. Oh, well, that means that the author felt this about this situation. And like I can extrapolate what, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne felt about, you know, the Confederacy, even though it was years before it happened or whatever. Like this is what, uh, you know, I now know what F. Scott Fitzgerald thought about the American dream because I read The Great Gatsby. And it's like, well, what about these like the like, critical pieces of information that you maybe don't have? That would totally redefine what you think about it. I'm not going to watch Beauty and the Beast again the same way after realizing that it was this sort of Herculean final effort, right, of, of this like of this guy who, you know, grew up doing shows for his little sister when they were latchkey kids with his her dolls and his action figures. Right. Like uh, like when, when he says, like, oh, tale as old as time, you know, tune as old as song. And they're singing about Beauty and the Beast. And it's like uh like he has to make a disclaimer that this was a line. Sorry, I think you were trying to get in. I'll pause for a minute. Um, if you're trying to get in, I don't want to monopolize too much. No, I was uh, I was disciplining the dog. I realized I wasn't on mute. <laughs> you were talking to Gus. Well, that's all very good because, you know, look, there you go. I didn't know the essential fact of your situation, but I will say this. So in the the title track, uh, Beauty and the Beast, right, when when one of the things that always confused me about that song is uh Mrs. Potts telling Chip that it's a fairy tale, right? So, so if we look, so if you look at the lyrics to Beauty and the Beast, right? Let me bring them up, um, and uh, it's it's uh, oh great! If I just search Beauty and the Beast, it's like so much stuff. But if I look at the lyrics to the song, right? Um, Celine Dion ones, the Ariana Grande ones. Can I just get the regular ones? Thanks very much. Uh, Tale is all this time. True as it can be. Barely even friends till someone bends unexpectedly. Uh, Tale is all this time. Song is all this rhyme. Beauty and the Beast. So, so that doesn't make sense to me as a kid, right? The idea that this is an old story, <laughs> and it sh- and it doesn't make sense to me in the context of what's going on because presumably the reason that there's a fairy tale about Beauty and the Beast is because it happened, you know, not that I necessarily believe that it was real, but it's like the, 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 it's not like the, the people who are in the beauty and the beast situation 
are thinking like, man, this is a lot like a story that I once read about a beast and a and a and a woman and a rose, right? It's like this is all happening to them for the first time. Uh, I know I know now, of course, a lot about meta, right, and about uh, meta textuality and kind of camp and all these other kind of self reflective ways of of alienating the story. But but that also doesn't really feel like what Mrs. Potts is saying to Chip, right? That it's like you know, by the way, Chip, you know. I've told you this story a bunch of times since we were transformed into flatware by a warlock or whatever. <laughs> like it's like that's but but when you think about it in terms of like um, that, this is a guy. And again, here I'm trying I'm trying to leap towards this person from the information that's in the show based on the information that I've just learned about him. But I'm not going to get there because I don't know if I know the essential facts. But it, but knowing little things changes so much so that this is a guy who wrote edgy. President like Edgy Campy, you know, he he owned a theater company with his uh, with his lover, who was a kind of uh, you know he's framed in this story as as a party boy who couldn't hold on to a relationship and who you know uh, I mean the, the the movie's a little unkind and, and kind of blames him a little bit for everything that happens, but this idea that he had this sort of passionate affair with this guy he grew up with and they tried to make a play happen and it didn't work, right? Like they had to close down their theater company. He made other off-Broadway plays and in these Broadway plays, this off-Broadway play, he's like reflecting on old movies and he's reflecting on old musicals and there's this through line through his work that he's concerned with these kind of old stories. If I were to go see a, a show done by the Gold Dust Orphans here in Boston, which is a, you know, a camp, you know, gay theater company, right? And LGBTQ, I'm sure it's expanded its representation hugely, but it's of the sort of thing that you would you would see is associated with guys like Harvey Firestein, right? And and Divine and uh, and so on and so forth. Um, I would expect that they could reference, you know, this is like a fairy tale because the base assumption is that it isn't a fairy tale. And that's really kind of what I'm getting to with a lot of this is like the rediscovery of Disney fairy tale through these movies, having seen this guy's life makes me feel like there is a reaching toward the fairy tale that is happening that is not just rooted in the idea that, okay, these are public domain, the everybody likes them, Walt Disney really liked them, and he cut his teeth doing fairy tales, so we're also going to do fairy tales. And maybe that's the motive for why they do it, but but what the story is about has these like additional reasons to to latch on to these fairy tales. Um, and, and I never would have thought listening to it that that when Mrs. Pot is telling Chip that this is like a fairy tale, it's that she's offering this kind of comfort that could be seen as analogous to the comfort that the brother is showing the sister with the action figures and the dolls and the cowboys and the Indians. Right. Um, that that it's like we're I'm going to I'm going to kind of bring to you an understanding of our situation that's kinder than the apparent reality, which is that we've been abandoned by our parents. Right. Like uh, um, moment, if only briefly. Right. Um, by bringing you to this fantasy world. But it, but it's one that's going to be better than the one that you think that it's going to be. Um, I mean, I'm ranting a lot and I'm overthinking a lot, but it's just like I mean, did anyone else feel that their sense of any of these musicals was transformed by knowing about this person, because uh, because I just I didn't know. I mean, did you know all of this stuff had happened to this guy um, and all the I people mean, around? I don't him? know. Pete, I don't know what you're talking about. I can, yeah, I can remember the very first time that I heard that line about using antlers in all of my decorating. I was like, the man who wrote that uh, was dying, and he knew that he was dying. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's the. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
the line, the line, the, the, line the line that you're looking for is every inch of my body is covered in hair. <laughs> every, every last week to be is covered with hair. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, here's, here's the interesting thing about the Disney Renaissance is that, like, you know, we, we think. <laughs> Wait, where is it? What is. Finally, Matt. <laughs> finally. I really, I really yeah. tee that up for myself. No, Tell I mean, me. Like, <laughs> I mean, I think the, the conventional sense of it is that, like, it's a renaissance because Disney started making good movies again, right? Disney got good again, and that's why it's a renaissance. But it's also a very self-conscious return to an old formula. Like, we think, like, oh, all the Disney movies are fairy tales, but they're really not. They have for a long time. I'm looking at a list of all the Disney animated movies. The last real fairy tale was Sleeping Beauty in 1959. Mm. So that's, like, a full almost 30 years um, and then, you know, you have a bunch of, I, mean, I guess like the sword in the stone is kind of a fairy, but it's not a princess, you know, the, I mean, they, they definitely do a lot of movies, you know, from the public domain, like, you know, the jungle book and Robin Hood, but it's not really like a fairy tale where like, you know, it ends with a wedding. Right. And that I feel like, you know, almost in the way that, um, they little shop of horrors, they took it, they updated it and gave it a new spin and, and gave it heart where it did have heart before, it's like uh, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid. They are very much like returns to an old formula, but with like a certain new energy. And and honestly, it's I think it's interesting that like all three of those movies, part of what makes those seem like a trilogy and uh, makes The Lion King seem like it's a little bit of a, a you know, a, a different strain is that like they are all very much like focused on this romance between this the guy and a girl and they all end with a wedding. Very explicitly they end with like, you know, these two are married, the end. Um, in a way that like, you know, most of the Disney movies in the decades before really hadn't for a while. And also like most of the Disney movies after didn't. Partially because I think I think there's something problematic you know that like we're not going to go into here about like the little mermaid beauty and the beast in the way that the story that told about like you know what what is good and important in life and like you know what a what a young teenage girl should uh, dream about and strive for but like you know there's a, i think there's a conscious course correction in things like pocahontas where they don't end up together or the hunchback of Notre dame where they don't end up together or like mulan where like it's sort of implied that they end up together but that's not really important um you know that they they sort of uh, evolved the formula, but like these three movies are very pure distillations of the older Disney movies, but with like a lot of you know modern rock or you know uh, sort of a camp pastiche of, of Broadway uh, tropes, you know that 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 feel very modern and new. Yeah, I mean, and one, and I think that actually the female characters do more in these, you know, uh, than in, in Cinderella and in Sleeping Beauty and in Snow White, uh, they don't, they don't quite have as much personality, maybe. But another thing that I think underlines the point that you're making here is if you go back to the fairy tale sources for Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid and, uh, and, uh, Aladdin, like only one of those actually does that. So like, uh, Beauty and the Beast is your sort of, uh, catalog specimen fairy tale where it's weirdly psychosexual and there's this kind of repetition, uh, a lot of very, very thinly veiled, uh, allegories for sexual awakening and things like that going on in it. And it does end up with, with, uh, the, the Beauty and the Beast getting married and living happily ever after. Uh, Little Mermaid, of course, is Hans Christian Andersen. So it's all about how, uh, in fact, the happy ending is that she 
dies, but she goes to heaven, right? Uh, there's a, that amazing scene where she's realized that she's not going to get to marry the prince, and her sisters show up, and they're like, take this knife and kill him, and you can go back to being a mermaid. And she's like, no, it's better that I die. And she casts herself into the sea, thinking that her soul will be utterly destroyed. That's the happy ending in Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, and obviously that's not how the Little Mermaid movie works. And then Aladdin is like, so that's the Arabian Nights, which would be a different tradition, except I, I think that this is something that we're not totally sure about, but Aladdin is one of the stories that seems to enter the Arabian Nights tradition when it's translated out of Arabic into French in the 19th century, meaning that probably it's some French writer who is reading these uh, these folktales from the Middle least and gets an idea for one that he thinks would work well and it's a just fanfic. sort of comes up with it calls it a folktale and sticks it in it's a, it's fanfic yeah and the the way that it's kind of this like sword and sorcery boys adventure kind of tale where uh, the you know there is a princess he marries her but it's more him marrying her is about him becoming uh, a, a very fancy boy and then the actual story of Aladdin goes on for much longer that and like the evil wizard is trying to get the lamp back and he gets it back for a while does something stupid but then uh, Aladdin manages to trick him and like uh, and it's just like it doesn't have that neat structure. They don't get married happily ever after. They get married and then they're nonsense adventures because it's just kind of like a picaresque. Uh, so the fact that it is that like that very clear structure three times in a row is a hundred percent. You know, Ashman and the rest of his collaborators. It's not about the source, the stories that they're drawing. Hmm. Yeah, that the because it's not because the source material is more varied is is more diverse. Um, we are uh, sort of coming up on the the you know uh, eleven o'clock number of our uh, Broadway musical uh, slash Howard Ashman podcast here, so I I think it might be uh, I think it might be time to sing our uh, grand finale number and send it on uh, send it on to uh, the readers to do um, their summer camp versions of uh, of the play. So we would love to to hear um, in the comments your thoughts about the Disney Renaissance about you know the kind of the the form of i mean we didn't really say the h word a whole heck of a lot uh in in this podcast but it you know it's one that that might well have come up and so i guess the the connection to you know the current the current generational broadway mega hit uh is left as an exercise to the reader if anyone wants to take that up in the the comments on the show notes of this uh episode we would love to to hear that this has been a great discussion thanks so much guys for podcasting with me to everyone who's listening thank you very much for listening uh we'll be back next week with more overthinking a podcast till then visit us on the web at overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it yeah. probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. Doesn't deserve.